Seven Mile Roaders, good morning. We're glad y'all are here. I was teaching this morning in a Sunday school class, our quipping class is what I call it, um, in Galatians, and Paul starts out the, the letter by saying to the church at Galatia. So to the church, you are part of this church in Houston, and we are, we are one family, and so we're really grateful for that sense of solidarity this morning. May God use uh, us serving each other and serving uh, our, the communities that we're in to expand his kingdom and to save many. Um, God, God bless you guys as you, as you live in Christ. We, we love you. We, we, we're truly glad you're here. Um, Nat, thanks. That was so good. I'm so encouraged by that word, man. Just carrying Christ, listening. So uh, before I get started, one brief thing. I, I met uh, someone that most of you know. Um, his name's Fernando. And then I met later Damia, who was his girlfriend when she came here and is now his wife. I had the privilege of marrying them a few weeks ago. And we're just grateful for them. And uh, he, he had fled. I met him at a CC's Pizza, and I started talking with him. And he said, I'm from Venezuela. And I said, uh, do you have any family here? He's like, no, I left all my degrees, all my family, all my resources, everything, and I fled the country. And this was like early part of last, so last spring, early part of the summer. And uh, so I said, do you want a family? Because I got one. And he's like, yeah, that sounds great. So he's been part of this family and is part of this family. Where are you, Fernando? Is he here? Yes. And, and Damia too. Yeah, we love you guys. You guys are their family. Um, but he's constantly, with, with the amount that he makes, and he and Damia work, work their fingers to the bone. They're working. Every time I talk to them, they're working. Um, he's working to support himself and to save up money for, for his new wife and their household, but also sending as much as he can home He'll, every month or so, he'll buy a box. It's a special kind of box that you can buy and you can fill it with any, any weight, anything that fits, and then you ship it. And he's just getting basic necessities to his family. I remember we went to the HEB before Damia got here. Um, it was the first time he'd been to HEB. And we went to this one right here on San Felipe in Fountain View. And we were in the condiments aisle because every day he would just make a sandwich for himself and squirt like ketchup and mustard on it. And that was like his three, his three meal a day thing. And... Um, you know, Kahneman, we're looking for like relish and there are about 50 relishes. And I was like, yeah, I bet you there would just be like one or two relishes in, in Venezuela. And he was like, no, brother. He put his hand on my shoulder. He's like, there would just be on this whole aisle, there would be like bleach and vinegar. And that's it. And so he's just sending stuff home to his family. And I was like, dude, surely this family, your family can help you out a little bit um, with that. And so this isn't an Advent campaign. That's coming later. That's coming for our partners and church planting. Um, uh, but it's benevolence. We want to help a brother and his family back in Venezuela. And so I, I was like, let us, let us give us the gift of being a, a small part of this. And so um, if you want to give to that, I think he's going to ship in a, in a couple weeks. But um, from buying the box to filling the box with goods, um, instead of y'all going out and getting the goods, um, we've set up a, Merrill set up a benevolence fund. And if you want to give, if you give regularly through Planning Center, there's a benevolence tab. If you want to give online, I believe the benevolence tab is on the giving tab if you click down. And then if you want to write a check and put it in the black box, just write benevolence on it. Um, but just to give some toward having the privilege of helping our brother and his family um, as they really have very little to provide for them. So it's really, it's really clothing, necessities, and food items. Um, and so if you want to do that, um, please give benevolence for the next week or so. And that would be great. Um, so we love you guys. Uh, let me, we just love you. And let me, let me pray for you real quick. Lord, I thank you for Fernando. 
I thank you for bringing him into my life and me into his and him into our life, Lord. I thank you that you bring us into a family that is, maybe as Justin said earlier, you, you restore the hearts of fathers and their children. You bring us into your family and you bring us, the fatherless into families. And Lord, I just thank you for this family. I thank you for them, that they, they are a part of it and that they make it richer. Um, Lord, we bless Damia's family and Fernando's family down in Venezuela. We ask that you would have mercy on that nation and lift them out of a corrupt rule um, and bring prosperity to their land. Lord, bring revival, um, save many. I pray that you would even use this small token. Thank you for the, the gift and the blessing of being able to give. Um, you'd use this small token to, to bless them, to bless their family, and to bring Christ down into that land. Um, so we love them. We bless them in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Awesome. All right. So we have, a three, we have three weeks before Advent. We just finished a series, and Advent starts soon, and that'll, we'll be in Isaiah. We're normally in a gospel. I think every year of this church plant, we've been in a gospel, but we're going to be in Isaiah. Um, so the, the prophecies about the coming Messiah, which I'm excited about. But until then, we have three weeks of just open space. And so I thought, well, what's better than the Psalms? So I'm just going to pick I'm just going to pick three psalms, and the first psalm I picked, obviously, is Psalm 16, um, which really is about fullness of joy, David discovering joy in God. And so we're just going to basically walk through, line by line, through the psalm together. It's just so rich. Um, so if you have your Bibles open, that's great, and if you don't, it should be on, on the screen. Um, so this psalm is about joy. It is about surpassing and rich and soul-satisfying joy. The thing that we're really, even if we don't have a category for it, all searching for in life. Regardless if you're a Christian, if you're not a Christian, if you're a believer or not a believer, wherever you are, this is the kind of thing you're searching for. Something that transcends circumstances, that's a deep and abiding peace and security and satisfaction. That's what joy is. It's not, it doesn't have to do with circumstances. It, it is below and above circumstances. It's a rootedness of soul. And this is what David finds, but he doesn't start there. And that's the way it is with joy. David starts somewhere else. He starts where we often find ourselves in life, which is he starts in trouble. And that's what the Psalms are. They speak to where we are. Um, but that's the way joy is too. If you go after joy as joy, you're not gonna get it. You're not gonna get it. Um, instead, David shows us the way. And the way is to go to God and to go after God wherever you are. And joy and surpassing satisfaction and deep and abiding peace of soul, you will find. Um, and so David shows us the way and we're just gonna trace his way. C.S. Lewis, um, he says, aim for earth and you totally, of course, miss heaven and you lose earth as well. If you aim for heaven, you get heaven and earth is thrown in as well. Um, that's, that's to paraphrase something that's much finer in the way that he says it. Um, but again, you go straight after joy. It's not the way to get it. Go after God and joy and all else besides is thrown in. And that's the way David ends the Psalm. So we're gonna see that. So right away we see, um, starting in verse one, David says what? The first two words, preserve me. He is in trouble. Um, most of the early Psalms, if not all, start this way. David, the Psalmist, is in trouble. And, um, he is crying out to God for rescue. It is so easy for us to relate in this world with that. Every single one of us, the older we are, the more we can relate to a man who's just in trouble and he's crying out. Trouble is at our door everywhere we turn in this life. Um, and in fact, 
not only does David usually start his psalms with being in trouble and crying out to God, but the first psalm in the Psalter, the 150 psalms that we have that we know is from David, Psalm 3, is what? The particular situation is David is actually running for his life from his own son who's trying to kill him. So this is, this is David. He, he is in the midst of trouble and he's crying out to God. Um, the point is the psalms meet us where we are. They aren't just the songbook of God's people. They're the prayer book through the life of God's people that teach us how to talk to God where we are. They're extremely practical. Um, so the first point I wanna bring up in this no surprise three-point sermon is just we see David's sincerity here. We see David's sincerity. And under that, we're gonna look at security first. We're gonna look at security. Um, David says, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. In you I take refuge. So he's in trouble and he says, I'm hiding in you. How, do, how did David do this and how do we take refuge in God? Well, the short of it is that he doesn't run in trouble. He doesn't run to other things for comfort. So often I, and I can probably say with a fair amount of confidence, each of us in life, I have this week a number of times, when I'm in trouble in whatever form or fashion, I will instinctively run to other stuff for solace for comfort, for security. David doesn't do that. Notice when he's in trouble, what does he first do? He runs to God for refuge. Um, How do we do this? What does God say about who he is and who you are and what he's done for you in the gospel, in his word? We run to his word. We remind ourselves, not we take our eyes off of our circumstances. Then we look to his word and to his precious and true promises in Christ. Who does, what has he done for me? He's given me his very self. He's hung on a cross for me. And there we go. Who does he say I am? His child in Christ. He's got me. He's never gonna leave me or forsake me. Um, so we lift our eyes from that person who snubbed us. We lift our eyes from our deadlines, from our low bank accounts. We lift our eyes from our anxieties, which we're rife with often, I am. And from our distractions, from the white noise of this world and we gaze on God. We just pause and we gaze on God through listening prayer, through praying the Psalms, through reading his word, through communing with the saints. Um, we learn that God is the kind of God, what does this metaphor teach us? He's our refuge. He's the kind of God who in our trouble, we can hide in him and he takes the hit for us. And when he is struck for us, we are not shaken. And he's not going anywhere. So we see that security from David in his sincerity. We also see um, supplication. He shows us how to cry out to God. So he's in trouble and he cries out to God. Notice, and this is, this is why I sort of belabored the point at the beginning. He doesn't start out by praising God, although he gets there quickly. But he goes, he starts with where he is. He needs help. And he's honest about that. And I just want to say, this is a great instruction. I said the Psalms are a songbook, but they're also, I hope that when you sing songs, whether you're in your car or here on Sundays or wherever, when you sing songs of praise to God or songs of lament or whatever songs that are worship songs, that you don't, that you don't just see them as things that you ought to be thinking or feeling or doing or believing. That oftentimes, those songs are a prayer for how I'm praying them, Lord, make me this way. Lord, help me to believe this. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. This is true about you. So they're aspirational. Um, so the Psalms are prayers. And um, his prayer just begins, quite honestly, it's simple, where he is. And why do I say that? Because oftentimes, one of the things that would, um, that would hurt my prayer life for a long time is that I would think that I had to start up here with, no matter where I was, oh God, 
I praise you for your this, your X, Y, and Z. You are just, you're holy, you're merciful, you're full. Those are all true. But to have to start, because we have the Lord's Prayer. The Lord teaches to pray. When you pray, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, holy is your name. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom. So it's a kingdom. It's that. And then the requests come after that. And then we have the Acts Prayer, which kind of comes out of that. It's the acronym, Adoration, A, Confession. So before you start confessing and before you get to all the things you want to ask for, the S, the supplication, it's adoration. You start with praise. So for a long time, I, instead of starting where I was, I would start with praise. But actually, this, the prayer book of God's people, the Psalms, is full of David just, and the other psalmist just starting out with where they are. Help. Help is a great place to start. And what we see is that him start, his starting here leads him quickly to God and his character and to taking refuge in him. And actually, um, all through, in, in verses 2, 5, and 11 especially, we see woven, threaded throughout this psalm, he is in rapturous praise for who God is and what he's done. So oftentimes, if we'll just start with where we are, God will take us through that honesty to him and to his heart. Um, and, that's, and that's wonderful. Paul Miller in his wonderful book of Praying Life, gives this advice. Just start where you are. And I think it's wonderful. Um, we often start, start, or so we'll make that mistake. We'll just try to start with adoration and then we'll peter out. We'll peter out because we're like, praise you, Lord. And then we just won't because we're not being honest, really. We, uh, we won't get into really, the, the Puritan said, pray until you pray. Oftentimes I pray, but then I don't do the until you pray part. <laughs> I just move on. I fall asleep. I wander uh, something else distracts me. Um, so we'll do that, or we'll just say, help. We'll start with help, but then we won't go where David does. We'll, and what David does is he says help, but then he moves from help, I'm in trouble, to this sublime phrase, I have no good apart from you. I have no good apart from you. So we see, we see what makes David tick here. We see his heart. He's honest with God, but he quickly goes straight to God as my marrow and my, subs, my sustenance and my glory and my treasure. Um, I just want to park on this for a second. I, ha- I have no good apart from you. Just, just let that resonate in your ears and in your heart for a second. Can you truly say that? Can you truly say with David, I have no good apart from you? That, that tells us at least two things. First of all, it tells us that every good comes from God and through God. He gets credit for all of it. A lot of times when God gives me a good, I think of it as a period at the end of it instead of a colon. All goods have a colon. All goods that are not God have a colon after them. They lead us to the living God. In other words, if a, God, if a, if a, if a good is a, has a period at the end of it, when it's just an end in and of itself, it's an idol. If, if it's an arrow to point us toward the good giver who is, who is goodness and beauty itself, then that is... That's what we see in David's heart, and that's what it's made for, to, to point us to God. It also tells us not just that goods come from him, but that he is, in essence, look, he's the only good. He is the sumum bonum. Jesus said to Martha when she was complaining about Mary sitting at Jesus' feet, he said, Martha, you're anxious about many things. Mary has chosen the good portion, and it won't be taken from her, because really there's only one necessary thing. There's only one necessary thing. Um, to get our hearts to that place. Like Moses said on the mountain in Exodus 33, God said, I'm gonna give you every blessing. I'm gonna keep all my promises. I'm gonna send you to the land I promised you, riches, security, comfort. I want those things, but I'm not going with you. 
because if I go with you, I'll destroy you because you're a wicked people and stiff-necked. And what did Moses say? He said, no deal. If you don't go with us, we're not going because you're it. Is your heart in that place? Is mine in that place? Um, and don't be condemned if it's not. David's going to lead us. David's going to lead us to a place where we can be in that place, okay? Um, so after crying out, David quickly and abruptly shifts to a full focus on God alone. Not his gifts, but just his presence. Not his hand, but his face. Um, going to God in prayer takes us there. So, and lastly, under this first point, um, we look at, he, he mentions the saints. And I'll be quick here, but it's a really interesting thing. He says, he goes from, I have no good apart from you, this sublime phrase to verse three, which is really interesting. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my, my delight. Why does he go to the saints? Here's why. And here's why it's important in this train of thought that David gives us. Because it's hard to think about God and to love him and to fixate on who he is and his beauty without thinking about and loving his people. Because God connects himself to his people. He seeks relationship to his people and he has gone to ultimate lengths and paid the ultimate price to connect them to him. Um, Let me say it this way. You cannot love God and hate his church. Okay? Um, I know many people who say they love God but have no use for his church. Um, That's not to say they're satisfied with where the church is. When you love something, you're not satisfied with where it is. You love it, you love it, you serve it, but you also want to see it progress. You want to see it flee from sin and flee to God in this case. Um, So that's not to say that you think it's perfect. The the church is full of sinners, but to have a love for the saints, for God's people. And that the saints means the, the the ones who are God's people in the Old Testament, and now that is the church, Jew and Gentile alike, male, female, barbarian, civilized, doesn't matter. That's the church. Um, but if you disregard the church or if you've been burned by the church and you say, you know what, I'm going to go my own way or, um, but you say, but I've, it's, God and I are still tight. I'd still, I love God, but I, I have no use for his church. You're deceived. You're deceived. Think about it this way. If you say, um, that you, you love me and hate my wife, that's impossible. You say, I love Taylor, but I hate his wife. If you say, Taylor, I love you, but the next breath you say, but I hate Robin, um, that's my wife and I are one flesh. You can't love me and hate my wife. Um, you are deceived. It doesn't work that way. And so we go from there to realizing that, that um, the church is Christ's bride. Do you honestly think you can love Jesus and despise um, the, his own bride, the one that he gave his life for? Um, and so do you think you can love him and hate his bride? You cannot do it. You cannot do it. So that's just a, it's, a, it's an interesting verse. It kind of took me um, by surprise when I was going through it. But what God is, what David is suggesting and saying, we see in his life rather, is that he loves God and because he loves God, he loves God's people and he wants what's best for them and he wants what he's crying out to God for, for them. And so um, I just want to say that um, we just hear a lot of bad mouthing of the church today by folks who say, I love God, but you cannot love God and hate and despise this church. Um, the two go together. And so let us love the church. Let us serve the church. Um, and as we do that, we're serving Christ himself because he, he will wed her one day and he, he is taking her to himself. So, so that's that. Um, secondly, I wanna go and just look at sorrows in verse four. Like I said, we're just gonna, we're just gonna walk through this, this psalm. Um, point two, sorrows. Man, this is where he, David takes a dive here. And this is, this is full of meat. Um, the sorrows of those who run after other gods will multiply. In this case, help yourself. Um, don't think 
of, uh, I, I don't think of other gods. Like I don't, none of us are going to be helped by thinking that we, we, we believe in other gods, like we're Greeks or something. We're not Greeks. We either believe in no God or one God, probably. Um, but think of functional gods. Think of functional gods. Think of the things that you look to for security and identity. Think of things that if they were taken away, you would be devastated. Um, David is saying, if you run after, if you chase after, if you put your happiness in those things, what? Your sorrows are gonna multiply. Um, The word sorrows also means pain. So your pains are gonna multiply. Nuisances will arise. Your heart will be weighed down and eventually break. Have you ever had that happen? As you run after functional idols, functional gods, things that are not God that are probably good, but that you're placing your happiness in and you're chasing hard after them. And they let you down and they break your heart. I have. Um, let's, let's dive into this a little bit more. Let's press into it. If you, if you look at the verb run after in the Hebrew, it's really interesting. A couple things um, to say about that. The first is to say that um, if you press into it's clear meaning, it's just, it's run after. Um, think about that image for a second. David's saying if you run after, uh, anyone who runs after other gods, their sorrows are gonna multiply. Think about that image. It's an image of us chasing and spend a, spending a ton of energy on something, but never being able to obtain it. And that's exactly the way that any putting, giving your heart to and seeking security and satisfaction in anything but God is going to, that's the relationship, what it's gonna be. You might feel like you have it for a while, but essentially you're always gonna be chasing it. Um, You're never gonna be able to grab hold of it. Um, And there's a sense here of haste and anxiousness. Um, So that's gonna be the sense, not a deep and abiding peace and joy, but the sense that's gonna pervade your life if you run after these things, if you give yourself to these things, is gonna be haste and anxiety, okay? Um, False gods promise satisfaction, but they never give it. Um, But secondly, Building on this, the meaning a bit more acutely, um, sometimes this verb means to acquire a wife in the Hebrew. In the ancient Near East, a price was often paid for a bride. So, and often it was a great price. It was a bride called a bride price. Um, once, and so you pay a price for a bride and then you find yourself bound to that bride and becoming one flesh with that bride. And that's possibly, that's possibly a nuance of what David is saying here as we press into this, this word here that what we're doing when we're chasing after things that are not God for our satisfaction and security is, we are paying a great price for those things and we are binding ourselves to those things. So if they're taken from us or if they disappoint, we are crushed. We have, we have united, we have, our identity has become integrated into these things that are not God. And that's an extremely tenuous, scary place to be, but we've all been there. Um, Derek Kidner, a wonderful Old Testament commentator, points out uh, that this language, their sorrows are multiplied, seems to be an echo of the Garden of Eden. Because in Genesis 3.16, these same two words are in close connection. Sorrows in Hebrew. Sorrows and multiplied, talking about Eve and the consequences of her disobedience. Um, so what is, what is David saying here, if indeed this is a verbal echo of Eden? He's The psalmist is telling us, and God is telling us through the psalmist, this isn't just a David problem. This isn't just an ancient Near Eastern 3,000 years ago problem. This is universal because of the fall. We have been been disoriented and broken and devastated on the inside. Um, And we, in our broken programming because of the fall, 
outside of Jesus Christ and what God has done to begin the process of restoring all things in his dear son, we are born into such a state that our natural proclivity, our tendency is to run after things um, that multiply our sorrows, that devastate us. Okay, it infects us all. It infects us all. But through David, this is another promise that we start to see starting in verse five and running all the way downhill or uphill, however you wanna look at it, to the end. The, the psalm gets sublime. Through David, and it's, it's whispered here, God will bring a redeemer and a king who will reverse the curse of the second Adam. He will break the spell that binds us on the inside and that has infected this whole world. And so we see some of that here um, in this psalm, which leads us to the last point, satisfaction. Satisfaction. Um, the rest of the psalm flows out in contrast to running after other gods and having them, what, multiply our sorrows. The rest of the psalm is a downhill sprint of rapturous praise in finding our security and refuge and satisfaction in a God who not we pay a price for and find ourselves devastated and our sorrows multiply, but rather what? Who pays a price for us, a great price for us, and who actually satisfies. Who actually satisfies. So let's look at that together. Um, In verse five, David says that you are my portion. He calls God his portion. And in doing this, it's, it's probably an echo of Numbers eighteen twenty, where God says to the Levitical priests, he says, all the other tribes have an inheritance. They get land, but the Levites get no land. And de- God says to the Levites, what? He says, I am your portion and your inheritance. Um, so David's using priestly language here. We who are in Christ, the great high priests are called in the New Testament, a kingdom of priests. Um, and so we truly more than even David, because of what Christ has done for us and brought us into, because he's given us his very spirit, can say that the Lord is our portion. He is truly the one that, we, that runs to us, gives himself for us, and satisfies. He's the well that never runs dry. Verse six, like I said, I'm just gonna walk through these. They're so rich. Verse six, um, David says that you are my inheritance and the lions have fallen to me in pleasant places. Um, this is something David realizes. He hasn't ginned up. What's an inheritance? Is an inheritance something you work hard for? Same thing with lines have fallen to me in pleasant places, ancient Near Eastern language for uh, it's fallen to me. It was just this way. It's something I've been given through no good of my own. This closeness to God, this God is my portion, this favor from God, this satisfaction in God. Um, and yet there wasn't coercion. He talks about the Lord being his counsel. You see God as a, someone who's chosen David, but he's chosen to be a friend to David and a counselor and a sweet solace. Um, and that's from Derek Kidner. Um, but he's our, God is our maker and our master and our savior, but he's also our friend. And we see that here. He's the best friend that we will ever have. Um, if you don't think of God in this way yet as your, just your dear friend, your counsel, your counselor, with whom it is so sweet to be. I want, my prayer for you is that you, would, that you would know that that is what God wants for you. He wants a lot more, but he wants no less than to be your sweet counselor. Um, he is the best listener. His words are gold. His heart is always kind. Even if it seems like he's being cruel, God is not cruel, he's kind. He knows you and he has fully disclosed himself to you in Christ. And he longs to draw you close to his heart. So I would just beckon you, come in Christ, come. Um, Verse seven, David talks about 
um, thinking on the Lord, even at night, his heart instructs him. Um, a, lot, a lot here, but we see how fixating on God himself has actually started to produce feelings and thoughts in David that, are, that it started to shape his heart in such a way that even his heart is now starting to instruct him and it's connected to who God is. So this, this fixation on God and this running to God and his trouble is changing him. And even at night, he's thinking about God. This is a, what do I want to say here? I just want to push back from this verse and say, God is not a Sunday morning God to David. He's not just a quiet time God. He is someone that is David's best friend and counsel, his rescuer, his soul satisfaction, his portion. And he is someone that David is thinking about and talking to and listening to and whose heart is becoming attuned to all the time, even at the, at the dead of night, past midnight, before the, before the daybreak. Um, to be a Sunday morning Christian, but someone else during the week is an oxymoron. God came, all of God, he gave all of himself for all of you. That's it. That's the, there is no third way. That, there is no third way. Um, a Sunday Christian is an oxymoron, a fiction, and an absurdity. Um, verse eight, I have set the Lord always before me. Okay, this is interesting. I've never understood this before, and I'm not sure I do now. But I did have more time to think about it and to pray about it and to meditate on it. What does this mean? I have set the Lord always before me in verse eight. Okay, well, if I press into the Hebrew a little bit, it helps maybe. The word does not mean, okay, because it kind of seems like, I, don't, I hate to say this, but always, you, how do you set the Lord before you? It's almost like an idol. You, the Lord's not an idol. He's the maker of heaven and earth. How do you set the Lord before you? Um, it doesn't mean I put the Lord in front of me. The word means opposite me. Okay, so that's not a mind blower. It's not like you're, whoa, it means opposite me. Thanks, that really helped. Okay, how, hang on. Think about the fact that we're, we're, everything grows out of the garden, okay? The whole Bible is, is an oak tree that grows out of the acorn of Genesis 1 through 3. So in, in David has already probably taken us through an illusion, sorrows multiplied back to the garden. Um, opposite me first appears the same word in the Hebrew um, in Genesis 2. When God has Adam realize that there is not a counterpart equal to him and fit for him, um, that word... Um, there, there is no one fit for him is this same word in the Hebrew. So what it means is literally in the Hebrew, it means he doesn't have an equal opposite. I will make him a helper fit for him. Someone who can stand opposite him, look him in the eye, is every amount his equal in worth, but is opposite him, reflects him and is different than him and is a perfect complement for him and is standing in such a way that they can look at each other face to face and have intimate relationship, you see? And so, um, but, but opposite, equal but opposite. That's what the word means in the Hebrew. And so um, David is saying, I think, that I want the Lord to have, and the Lord does indeed have the place in my life of ultimate intimacy where he is constantly, I didn't, I'm not setting him anywhere. He is in front of me, looking me in the eye, counseling me, relating to me, talking to me, holding my hand, walking me throughout life, carrying me, nurturing me. He is everything I need. He's my portion. And, and um, he is my nearest and my best companion would be a way of putting, putting it. This is life itself. And what is David doing here? In saying that uh, he is my nearest and best companion, he's someone I walk with, 
He's someone I have intimate relationship with who knows me and who I know. Um, he is someone who stands opposite me as, as, the, as Eve stood opposite Adam. He's taking us back to the garden. This is what God made us for, and he made us for himself. Um, David says this in effect in another psalm, Psalm 27. He says, my father and mother have forsaken me, but the Lord has taken me in. Um, he just conveys that in a different way, that intimacy. But not only is God David's closest companion, as we've seen, he's his bulwark, he's his defender, he's his anchor. Um, he doesn't just stand opposite David, but he's at David's right hand, right? His fighting hand, his hand of strength. Um, God knows David, he's a comfort to David, but he also protects David and secures him and roots him. Um, life is gonna bring its storms, but we can hide in God and know that we are safe and secure regardless of what, of what happens. The righteous will be struck down seven times, but he will rise, right? Because his refuge is God. So now all that, we're in the last point, but we just get to run downhill. This is the fun part, verses nine through 11. There's some of the most delightful verses, nine, 10, and 11 in the, in the Psalter and indeed in the Bible, truly, truly sublime. What does David say in verse nine? He says, this is my translation, but he says, therefore my heart rejoices, and my glory shouts in exultation. Remember, David started where he was. Start in prayer where you are. If you're in trouble, say help. I'm in trouble, help. Start where you are. This is where David ends though, um, as, as, as he draws to a close, so will we. Um, he, he ends here and, um, sorry, I lost my place here. Okay. Therefore my heart rejoices and my glory shouts in exultation. This is, what is David doing here? He's shouting with a bubbling over from his heart and his voice. He's, he's in rapturous praise here. He's a man in love. This is like when you're driving down the road and you're listening to country music or whatever music of choice and you're singing along with the windows down at the top of your lungs because you're in love. You're in love. And every song seems to speak to that. This is a man in love. Um, singing at the top of his lungs. This is like a kid dancing. I, I hope if you have kids, I'm, I know you, this happens in your household, but when our kids dance around and twirl around in the kitchen, if we're playing music and at night we're making dinner and we're having fun, this is a kid just safe at home with the people that love him and that he's secure with, just twirling around. This is, this is David. He is happy. He is happy in God. Even with his enemies at his doorstep, he is happy and secure in the Lord. Um, and... So he says, also my flesh dwells in security or trust. He says this more famously in another Psalm, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. All my big needs are taken care of. I'm happy, I'm content, I'm secure. Um, and then in verse 10, he downshifts a little bit before getting to the, 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 last, the last verse, which is, just, which is just wonderful and sublime. Um, he says this in verse 10, he says, for you will not abandon my soul. I'm secure, why? For you're not gonna abandon my soul to Sheol or hell or let your Holy One see corruption. Now we can see, friend, how David fulfills this. David's saying, you're not gonna let me, I, I will die, but my enemies won't take advantage of me. Even if they do, and even when I do die, you're not gonna abandon me even in the grave. You're gonna take me to where you are. We can see how David fulfills this. But we see, and he actually says this in the next Psalm, at least as clearly, um, where he says, I'm gonna awake and I'm gonna see you face to face. I will be made in your likeness. You'll be right there with me. But actually, if we keep reading in the New Testament, Peter in his Pentecost sermon in Acts 2, and then Paul in Acts 13, both take this verse from this Psalm. And they say, actually, David doesn't fully fulfill this. 
He partially fulfilled it, but it's really about a greater David who would come from David. Because guess what they say? They both say this. David did see corruption. They take it literally. And they're like, he doesn't literally fulfill this. He was put in the ground, buried, and we know where his tomb is to this day. And let me tell you, his body has seen corruption. It's, it's dust. Worms have eaten it. One day he'll be reconstituted. So if these words don't truly and fully aren't fulfilled about David, who, 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 who does fulfill them? Well, Peter and Paul both show us the way, and we know they show us the way to read the entire Old Testament. It's the way Jesus shows us. He says, all of it points to me. Only Christ makes total sense of it and fulfills it. And that is that Jesus Christ was buried, but on the third day in the morning early, he rose bodily. God did not let his son, the greater David, the son of David, see corruption. And so what we see here is we see that Christ Jesus makes a door for David and for us of death into life and satisfaction and joy that are so deep. Um, I think there's another indicator in addition to what Paul and Peter say about Christ fulfilling this, that, that David doesn't fully fulfill it. He says, um, he says, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. And he's, I think he's talking in part about him, but he doesn't fulfill it. Jesus does. But actually that word Holy One um, is the word that we get covenant from or loving kindness. It's used of God who is full of, in the King James Version, loving kindness, he's the covenant keeper. In other words, he's the faithful one. It means faithful one. He's the one who is always true to his word, never breaks it, never breaks covenant, always keeps every stipulation of the covenant, and is faithful every single time. He can be relied on. And here's my question. Was David a faithful covenant keeper? He was a man after God's own heart. And truly that, but he broke covenant and that severely, big time, big time. Committed adultery with one of his, um, with the wife of one of his bodyguards and his 30 top men, and then had that man killed, among other things. He was a broken human. David is talking about one that there is only one who has walked this earth that has done this, who was a perfect covenant keeper, who did not break covenant. Um, we are covenant breakers too. We we, have, we are not faithful. We've broken our word. We've broken trust with ourselves, with one another, with God, if we're, any, if we're honest at all. Um, but Jesus Christ never broke covenant, but took the place on the cross of a covenant breaker and indeed was broken. His flesh was torn and his blood was poured out for us because he took our place on the cross. And because of that, at infinite cost to himself, Therefore, on that cross, he draws us to him into relationship, into a relationship that satisfies. Um, He draws us to his father, covenant breakers that we are, by taking our place as the faithful one and giving us his faithfulness. Um, And so because of that, the grave couldn't hold him. He did not see corruption. And so um, he makes, again, of death a door through which we walk into soul-satisfying life with God. Um, Passing into verse 11, David really outdoes himself here. He finishes in rapture, like I said. Derek Kidner says, this verse is unsurpassed for the beauty of the prospect it opens up in words of utmost simplicity. Um, And like I said, at the end of verse 17, David finishes this similarly. similarly. He says, as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I will be satisfied with your likeness. How can a covenant breaker like David say this truly? 
Again, because the one, the only one, David's greater son, the second Adam, the greater Adam who did what Adam couldn't do, who did what David couldn't do, the covenant keeper took the place of you and me and of David, of a covenant breaker, so that we could inherit all that he earned in his life, in his righteous life. Um, so Jesus fulfills these words and makes, again, of death a door to a kind of life that we only get glimmers of here and David only got glimmers of. We get echoes and we get shadows, but one day the, uh, the sun is gonna crest the horizon and the dawn is gonna break and we, we will feast. We've only, we, only, we get tastes here. True life is, is truly knowing God and his beauty and his goodness. But one day it's going to be, it's going to be unending and it's going to be um, face to face and it's going to be so rich. It's gonna be like drinking from a fire hydrant. Um, in Jesus, we see what God is like to his core and it is Jesus that we will open our eyes and see if we indeed have trusted in him. Um, in contrast to the other gods that we constantly chase after, that are constantly out of reach and that give us sorrow and that let us down and disappoint us, Christ satisfies. And he doesn't run away from us, what? He, he ran so far toward us that he ran all the way down here, became one of us, divested himself of all privileges and riches, lived poor and hung on a cross naked and shamed, became our sin and took our place and endured hell for us in the white hot, white hot furious wrath of God. Um, in just payment for our sins. Jesus Christ runs after us that hard and gives himself to us as our redeemer and friend. And in him, we truly find satisfaction. I just wanna say, if you're looking, this is a man who's showing us the way toward true joy and satisfaction. If you are looking to find your portion and your satisfaction in anything else in this world, I just want to plead with you to take David's word for it and to hide in God, which is to hide by faith in the person of Jesus Christ who is our way to God. He is our refuge, okay? Um, he took what we deserve so that we could have the smiling face of God um, and he truly satisfies. So John White, in closing, let me just read this. John White in a book called Eros Defiled says, he says, pleasure is as difficult to pursue as the end of a rainbow, Think about the whole psalm that we've just read here. So oftentimes we, it's running hard after pleasure and thinking we're gonna find it if we run after it is, is as elusive as trying to run after the end of a rainbow. Look for pleasure and you never find it. For pleasure is a byproduct, it's a side effect. It takes us by surprise when we're looking for something else. And what does David show us? If we run to God, we will find pleasure and joy and satisfaction and abundance. Um, John White, he gives this little poem. He says, I tried the broken cisterns, back to Jeremiah 2, which you read earlier. I tried the broken cisterns, so wells that don't hold water, they leak, Lord. But ah, the waters failed. Even as I stooped to drink, they fled and mocked me as I wailed. Seek God, he says, and you find, among other things, piercing pleasure. Seek pleasure, and in the long run, you find boredom, disillusionment, and enslavement. Um, in contrast to the broken cisterns that we drink out of to slake our thirst, Jesus, we find uh, at the well in John 4 with the Samaritan woman. And he says to her, you can keep on trying to satisfy your thirst by going to the well every day, or you can come to me. You can come to me. No matter what you've done, no matter how ashamed you are, no matter what sins you committed, if you come to me, 
um, you're never going to have to dip that bucket in the well again because I am the well. And he says in John 7, a few chapters later, if you come to me, if you thirst at all out of you, if you come to me and feast on me and drink from me and find satisfaction in me, out of you will start to bubble up a well of life, a spring of water that will bubble up to eternal life and it's never gonna run dry. Uh, and that is true. And that's what David shows us here in Glimmers that we see, that we see fully manifest in Jesus Christ. Um, so what is life? It isn't just one day, it's now knowing God in Christ. And that will result in knowing him face to face forever in a world remade. Let me finish with Derek Kidner's words. Um, the joy and pleasures are presented as wholly satisfying and endlessly varied. For they're found in both what he is, his face, right? And what he gives, his right hand. Joys of his face, which literally means joys of his, his presence. That's what um, in the Hebrew, it's literally of his face. So joys of his face are his presence and of his right hand pleasures forevermore. The refugee, he says in closing, the refugee, the one who says, help, help, Lord, I'm in trouble. The refugee of verse one finds himself an heir and his inheritance beyond all imagining and exploring. This is the favor of God in Christ. I wanna encourage you, run to him by faith, even today.